Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here. And if you are new this morning, new to Charlottesville, uh, new to Trinity, we especially want to welcome you. Greet you. We're so glad you're here. I would love to meet you uh, after the service in the foyer. I also want to give a greeting to any children in our midst. We are so glad that you are here and with us. This last week, we've had a whole lot of lovely people who've been thinking so hard about how to bring ministry to you children, how to show you who Jesus is. We're glad you're here. We're in the midst of a sermon series this July entitled, The Gospel According to the Psalms. And the word gospel, it means good news. And so we've been looking at the good news that the Psalms proclaim. And even though the Psalms were hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, they actually predict the gospel. They explain the gospel, which is why they're the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. If you think about it, the Old Testament is like a, a room with the lights turned off. The furniture is all there and arranged. But the gospel is there. But what the New Testament does is that it flips on the light and then you can see. You can see all the furniture. You can see the beautiful the beauty and the glory of this room. And so we're going to use the New Testament to flip open, flip on the lights of Psalm 32. So please turn in your Bible now to Psalm 32, or you can look on in your bulletin. We're actually going to be using a different translation than we usually do, the New Living Translation, LT. So you might need to use your bulletin. Let's read God's Word together. Uh, never mind. Listen to me read it. Don't read it with... Read it with me silently, silently. You got to give real clear instructions to Presbyterians. <laughs> oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So... Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your spirit hovers over your word, making it clear to us. 
And we ask that you would please clarify, give us, give us eyes to see Jesus in all his beauty and glory, and the glory and the beauty of confession that you call us to. May these words in my mouth and this meditation in my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's perhaps no greater meditation on the problem of guilt than that of Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. It centers on Raskolnikov, who plots out a perfect murder. He has imbibed the utilitarianism of the day and convinces himself that murder and theft can be morally justified. But as he carries out this murder of an elderly woman, another woman catches him in the act, leading him to a double murder. Raskolnikov had believed himself strong enough to withstand the guilt of such a murder. But as the rest of the novel unfolds, and because of Dostoevsky, there's a lot of the rest of the novel, <laughs> it's proven that Raskolnikov is unequal to the guilt. In fact, Dostoevsky, who can be so accurately portray human psychology, shows just how destructive and how dangerous guilt actually is. There's no better crash course in the inner workings of guilt, the wrestling with conscience, and the self-destruction that incurs. It's Dostoevsky, so it's a, it's a caricature of sorts. But even in the extravagance of the characters, we see something of ourselves in it, something of what it means to wrestle with guilt. And this morning, we have no less a profile of guilt, albeit in 11 short verses in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is all about guilt and the destruction it causes. And like crime and punishment, it also profiles the remedy. Psalm 32 is one of seven penitential psalms, called so because they're about repentance and confession of sin. For you kids, what that means is that these psalms are about saying sorry to God. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you probably know Psalm 51, which is David's repentance after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. The others are Psalm 6, Psalm 38, 102, 130, and 143. So even though we're going to be zooming in on Psalm 32, I'm going to be using some of these other penitential psalms to fill in what, this, what the psalms say about confession. So this morning... I have three points, actually I have four points, three that are on Psalm 32, and the fourth is going to be about how the New Testament quotes Psalm 32. So let's jump into Psalm 32. We're going to first look at the groaning of guilt. First point, the groaning of guilt. We see the groaning of guilt in verse 3. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. I still remember... The first lie I told my parents. I actually don't know if it was the first lie. I probably lied a lot more than that. But it's memorable. Because it struck my conscience in a new way. Like, I remember the feelings. The inner workings, the strugglings, the, the guilt. Like, I had manipulated truth for my own ends. I remember the groaning of guilt. And, and you know the groaning of guilt. Your conscience won't let you sleep. And you feel it in your guts. 
Like you, you lose your appetite. And there's the obsessive thinking. You get on the hamster wheel and you just start running. There might be rationalizations like, was what I did all that bad? Maybe it was just, a, but what about what they did? Or maybe it's the script of condemnation. Like, not again. I can't believe you did that, you stupid fool. Do you, do you have that self-talk? Or maybe the broken record is just fear. Like, who is going to find out? Who is going to find out what I did? That's the groaning of guilt. And it produces the most condemning grief. At one point in Crime and Punishment, one character notes to Rash Kolnikov that there is no one, no one unhappier than you in the whole world. Grief comes from guilt. Guilt is a universal human experience which says something, doesn't it? For all the stunning diversity of human cultures and mores across the globe, like every culture, every person is familiar with guilt. I can read Augustine's Confessions from the 4th century, and he gets me. I know it. He struggles with the same guilt that I do. Radically different cultures, radically different time, and yet this is what guilt is. We know it. And we feel guilt in our bodies. In verse 3, David's body is wasting away, he says. And then verse 4, it says, My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Psalm 38, another penitential psalm, has even more intense imagery. He says, My guilt overwhelms me. My wounds fester and stink. I'm bent over and racked with pain. A raging fever burns within me, and my health is broken. The groaning of guilt. Psychiatrist Roland Zahn at the University of Manchester has actually scanned the brain of those who are prone to depression. And he's found that the regions of the brain that are, that are affected by guilt that those regions actually look different in depressed people than people who do not struggle with depression. In other words, there's a neurological difference. Like when guilt and sadness attack us, we feel it in our bodies. The Bible speaks of humanity as this fundamental unity of body and soul, so it makes sense. Things that afflict our soul, anxiety, trauma, guilt, they afflict our bodies. When we are anxious, our hearts beat faster. When we are stressed, we are weaker, more weary, more open and vulnerable to disease. Through crime and punishment, Raskolnikov is perpetually sick. His body is feeling his guilt. He feels his guilty conscience. Now, wh where does guilt come from? Where does it come from? Well, the Bible speaks of a conscience that we are made and created with this faculty, this moral faculty that is meant to help us distinguish between right and wrong. And Paul in Romans 2.15 says that it's in, it's, it's in every one of us, that God has given every one of us a conscience. And it's, it's an internal warning system. Like, just like our body 
warns us of danger with hairs raised and elevated heart rate. The conscience warns us when we are in moral danger. It's in the conscience where we feel guilt. And friends, things go very wrong when we do not listen to our conscience. They go very wrong. Guilt is psychological evidence that justice is real. That morality is real. That God is real. Like, what evolutionary purpose does guilt serve? And even when our hearts deny that there is a right and wrong, or deny that we've done wrong, our bodies know better. Our groanings of guilt are evidence that God exists and that he requires something of us. That is the groaning of guilt, which leads us to our second point, the uncovering of confession. The uncovering of confession. Now, throughout crime and punishment, Raskolnikov resists confessing his murder, and it rips his insides out. Like, he's constantly running the script as he interacts with people. Like, do, do you know? Do you know? He's paranoid. And it makes sense. That's what guilt does. It makes us paranoid. And finally, he admits to Sonia, a young Christian woman, this terrible secret of his murder. And Sonia tells him his only hope is confession. Confession to God, to the police, to a priest, to everyone. What to do, she exclaimed, suddenly jumping up from her place, and her eyes, still full of tears, suddenly flashed. Stand up! She seized him by the shoulder, and he rose, looking at her almost in amazement. Go now this minute. Stand in the crossroads. Bow down and first kiss the earth that you've defiled, and then bow to the whole world on all four sides, and say aloud to everyone, I have killed, and then God will send you life again. Will you go? David was in the same place. In verse 3, he's refusing to confess in his agony, but finally in verse 5, he uncovers. He says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. He's uncovering. He's coming out of hiding. But notice that this is confession. This is not catharsis. You see, modernity's answer to guilt is catharsis. And that comes from Freud's influence. Freud's therapeutic approach was to pursue catharsis. He defined this catharsis as the process of reducing or eliminating a complex by recalling it to conscious awareness and allowing it to be expressed. In other words, to simplify that, all Freud wanted was the person to admit and express the guilt. That was it. Victory. The prescription was expression to get what was inside out of us. But do you see that here, Psalm 32 is an un uncovering to who? Who is David uncovering to? The Lord. Guilt is not merely psychological or social. It is always theological. Our guilt is ultimately in reference to God. It's vertical. And David uses three terms in verse 1 and 2 to fill out the nature of this vertical relationship and the nature of guilt. First, he has disobedience. 
disobedience that needs to be forgiven. We see that in verse 1. Think of this as high-handed rebellion directed at the Lord, right? Like, like a two-year-old. God's told us to do something. We say, no! Second, he has sin that needs to be covered up and put out of sight. The Hebrew term sin literally means missing the mark. He has a bad grade that absolutely disqualifies him before God. He should be expelled. And third, and most holistically, in verse 2, it says he has a record of guilt that needs clearing. He's got a criminal record. Criminal record. In fact, any sin, even those sins that we sin against each other, are ultimately against God. He is a lawgiver. When we break his law, it is personal. Psalm 51, that psalm I told you, this is about David's confession of murder and adultery. You know what David says in that? In verse 4, he says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is sin. It is ultimately about God. So it's not surprising that God himself is pushing David's guilt into him. Look at verse 4. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. Heavy. In other words, God is the one who's actually making David's guilt feel worse. He's pushing into David. Now, isn't that cruel that God would do that? The, the technical Christian word for this is conviction. And it is actually God's mercy. It is God's mercy. When we feel convicted, when we feel our guilt, that is God inviting us to be free of it. God is like a doctor who points out that if we don't do something about that gangrene, that gangrene, like it's going to kill us. And so he's making David see, he wants David to see, you need to do something about this. And friends, when we feel convicted, that is actually the mercy of God. That is God doing something in you. Do you want to know when God is working? It's when people begin repenting of their sins because they feel genuinely convicted. May we long for that here at Trinity. May we long to feel God's hand heavy upon us. And that leads us to point three, the joy of forgiveness. We've looked at the, the groaning of guilt, the uncovering of confession, and now we have point three, the joy of forgiveness. Really, this psalm is all about the joy of forgiveness from beginning to end. Joy bookends the psalm. Look back at verse one. Oh, what joy! Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. And look at verse 11. Verse 11 is a call of joy to others. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him shout for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. Here is a sinner who has found forgiveness and pardon. And the joy overflows. Fyodor Dostoevsky knew intimately the joy and freedom of forgiveness. At the tender age of 28, he was sentenced to death by the Roman government. He was thought to be a political revolutionary. 
And as he faced the firing squad, as he, he's looking at the firing squad, at the last minute, this cart rolls through, notifying him that the czar had pardoned his life. When we are forgiven, that's what it feels like. We have gone from death to life. We are forgiven. We are facing the firing squad, and then all of a sudden, it's no longer there. That's what forgiveness is. That's the joy of forgiveness. And it produces much fruit. I have three sub-points under this. Cheating. But verses 6 through 11, we can't go through all of them, but just listen. Here is the joy of forgiveness. First, it shares the power of confession with others. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you, it says in verse 6, while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. This psalm is an invitation and instruction and wisdom. I have felt, I've experienced the joy of forgiveness, and you can taste it too. Come, come drink. And do you realize just how hungry our world, just how hungry each other is for this joy of forgiveness? Marganita Lasky was a famous English novelist in the 20th century, and she was also an avowed atheist. At the end of her life, she admitted this. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. That is the hunger, and so we are to share the joy of forgiveness with others. The joy of forgiveness also strengthens our trust in the Lord. It strengthens our trust in the Lord. We see this in verse 7. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. You see, confession deals with the evil within us. But there are plenty of evils without. But the Lord is our refuge. He is the refuge of refuge. And just as we should run to him when we have our own sins, we can run to him in our sorrows. The joy of forgiveness also softens us to the Lord's counsel. Verse 8, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise and watch over you. Friends, do you want to know when you have actually repented to the Lord? When you've actually asked for forgiveness? There will be a softness in your heart. A, a desire to want to know what does God want from me now? There's an eagerness to obey. But there is this warning in verse 9. Listen to how the NIV translates verse 9. It says, But do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Or they will not come to you. What is David saying there? You see, some of us in our guilt are stubborn. Like we stand off from God. And most times it's our pride. Like I, I'm too unworthy to go back to God. I need to clean myself up. I did it again. I said it again. I looked again. So I can't, I can't go to God in this state. But David says, no. Don't be like a stubborn mule who stands off when the Lord invites him to come. The Lord is inviting us to come, especially when we are guilty, 
especially when we've been caught. That's the very moment that God loves it. Did you know that God never tires of your confession? He never tires of it. He loves it. He loves it. Because when you come to him, when you run to him, you are saying, God, you are the one who I need. He loves the reconciliation that confession provides. Friends, you can never out-sin the Lord or out-confess him. He delights in our confession. Most of us read the Psalms as standalone poems. But the Psalter, the book of Psalms, was actually arranged in, the, in an intentional way. And when you read Psalm 32, it harkens back to Psalm 1. They begin with the same word and end the same way. Listen to Psalm 1. It says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Psalm 1 goes on to make this intense contrast between the righteous on the one side and the wicked on the other. And the whole psalm sets the stage for the Psalter. Psalm 1 is about living the righteous life as opposed to the wicked life. And after reading Psalm 1, you might imagine that the blessed life, that's that word, oh joy, means blessed. You might think that the blessed life is the sinless life. You might think that, the perfect life. But then comes Psalm 32, which starts identically to Psalm 1. But here the joy, the blessedness is not for the sinless life. You know what it is for? The blessing is for the forgiven life. In other words, what distinguishes the righteous and the upright from sinners is not sinlessness. For all are sinful, says Psalm 14. What distinguishes them is confession and forgiveness. The blessed life, the joyful life, is the repentance life. Psalm 32 redefines the blessed state of Psalm 1. The righteous, or the upright in heart, as it says in verse 11, are not sinless, they're forgiven. They are the blessed who know the joy of forgiveness. Do you hear that? I know so many of us struggle to say sorry. So many of us struggle to admit fault, to admit our guilt. But actually, the more that we do that, the more happy and blessed we will be. The people that I know that can't say sorry, they are not fun people to be around. But the people that I know that are most, that say sorry, there's a humility, a joy, an attraction to them. They know that they don't have it in themselves. Now, what about the New Testament use of Psalm 32? This is our fourth point. What about the New Testament use of Psalm 32? We need to go to the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel of Jesus to the largely Gentile church in, Roman, in Rome. But Paul also needs to lay out Judaism and how it connects to Jesus' work. And so Romans 1 through 3 establish the universal phenomena of human guilt. Everyone is sinful. That's what Romans 1 through 3 is. It's really depressing. <laughs> You're all guilty. But then he gets to, and he even says, even unreligious people, like they have a law in their conscience. They know good. They know right from wrong. And they too are guilty. And then Paul gets to the heart of his argument and the good news. 
And this is it. He says, we cannot be saved by our works. If everyone is sinful, and they are, then there is no one righteous. No one can be saved by their works. And that's when he gets to Psalm 32. You can look on in your bulletin there. It's printed there. Romans 4, 4. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. In other words, what he says is Psalm 32 always knew it wasn't about works. If the true blessed person is not the sinless one, because we can't be justified by our works. But if the true blessed one is the one who is forgiven, this is what David was speaking about. He was speaking about the state of blessedness for not for the flawless life, but for the forgiven life. One of the most profound scenes in all literature comes as Raskolnikov confesses his sin to Sonia. She's a Christ figure in crime and punishment. And it's actually Sonia's love that redeems him. Sonia reacts in a curious way at his confession. She's distraught, yes. Indeed, the onlooker that he murdered was her friend. And she urges him to confess the murder, which will mean banishment to a Siberian labor camp. But at the same time, Sonia pledges her loyalty to him. He says, then you won't leave me, Sonia? He said, looking at her almost with hope, no, no, never, nowhere. I will follow you, I will follow you everywhere. Sonia, Sonia is declaring her loyalty in the midst of this confession, and he's shocked. Raskolnikov is shocked. Because she even promises to go with him into exile, into Siberia. And to assure him of her loyalty, you know what she gives him? She gives him a cross. She gives him a cross. In fact, the cross that belonged to the woman that he murdered. If confession is the means of forgiveness, the cross is the divine mechanism in back of it. You see, our guilt is costly. God cannot be a just God and merely ignore our guilt and sin. He forgives it, yes, but there is still a profound consequence. But our confession of sin is made possible by the cross of Christ. The punishment we deserve, the floodwaters of judgment, is how Psalm 32 says, the floodwaters of judgment. Isn't that great imagery? Like, that was poured out on Jesus Christ, Christ on the cross. The joy and the blessing of Psalm 32 came at the cost of Christ. You see, Christ accomplished this psalm for us. Remember those three terms of guilt. We were disobedient. He was obedient. We missed the mark. He defined the mark. We were guilty. He innocent. And so everything of Psalm 32, 1 through 2 says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. That's what Jesus did. 
He forgave. He made it possible that our disobedience might be forgiven. Yes, what joy. What joy whose sin, for those whose sin is put out of sight, the cross through all our sins into the sea where they cannot be seen. Christ covers our stain-covered, filthy, guilty rags with his pristine beauty. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. You see, Jesus was proclaimed guilty that we might be fully cleared in his name. This has a technical name in Romans. It's called justification. When we come to the Lord confessing our sin and believing in Jesus' sacrifice, we are justified. That's a, that's a courtroom term. It means that we've been judged not guilty. We've been forgiven and our record of guilt is gone because that has been given to Jesus. And all that was his has been given to us. That's where the joy of forgiveness comes from. And friends, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. You see, Psalm 32 points us forward to the cross, to the justification we have in Jesus. St. Augustine declares that Psalm 32 is, he says, quote, This is a psalm about God's grace and about our being justified by no merits whatsoever on our own part, but only by the mercy of the Lord our God. That's the gospel. Some think that Christianity is just a matter of doing good things, of being a good person. But the power of Christianity is actually the opposite. Being able to admit your bad things. Being able to admit the places where you're not so good. We are not saved by our good works. We cannot be. And that's the paradox of faith. It is when we are broken that we are most blessed. It is when we come to the end of ourselves that we actually find life. And Psalm 32 says that when we confess our guilt to the Lord, there are storehouses of joy awaiting us. Because he is rich in mercy and forgiveness. Trinity, may we taste the joy of being forgiven. And may we declare that joy to a world that is hungry for it. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we do hide ourselves in you. Lord, you protect us from trouble. You surround us with songs of victory. Oh Lord, and we praise Jesus that he is the one in whom this psalm is completed, is fulfilled. Lord, and we want that joy, oh Lord. Would you give it to us in him, the joy of being forgiven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.